Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll take a close look at President Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on households with annual incomes below $400,000. Our guest is Ben Ritz, director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. Aside from the Biden tax pledge, we'll also get Ben's take on a tax bill taking shape in Congress and the potential consequences that the nation's deteriorating fiscal outlook could have for our economic future. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins the conversation. Well, prior to joining the Progressive Policy Institute, or PPI as it's known, Ben Ritz uh, worked in, uh, at the Bipartisan Policy Center, uh, Commission on Retirement Security and Personal Savings. Uh, that was a project that he worked on there. He also worked on other federal budget issues, including the federal budget debt limit. And before joining the BPC, uh, Ritz served as legislative outreach director for a group called the Concord Coalition. And, and at some point during all that, he came back to the Concord Coalition for a while. And we were trying to think about what was your title when you came back? I think it was something like senior policy advisor. Senior policy advisor. Yes. I think you were 27 or something at the time. Anyway, um, Ben and Tori, uh, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Ben, you released a report this month on President Biden's tax pledge. And uh, and this is a tax pledge, as I said, not to not to raise taxes over people on people making under four hundred thousand dollars. I think it's a fair thing to say that you didn't give this a rave review. But but before we get into the details uh, of the pledge, let me just begin by getting your take on the role of revenues in fiscal policy. And I mean, do we need more revenues and is, is, is uh, higher taxes on wealthier Americans? Is that something that should be on the table? Yeah, I think we absolutely do need higher revenues. Revenue right now is something like 17% of GDP, uh, gross domestic product. Historically, it was, uh, it was higher and we now have higher levels of spending uh, than we did historically. Whether, you know, what the right level of taxes and spending are, I think, depends on folks' ideologies. But given how much of the federal budget is focused on supporting older Americans and the fact that our society is getting older in general with the aging of the baby boomers, I think that there's really no question that we're going to need more revenue moving forward than we've had in the past. In being critical of Biden's uh, pledge, you're not you're not saying that wealthier Americans shouldn't shouldn't get higher taxes as part of the mix. It's just. Yeah, we, I mean, we were very clear about that in our in our report. PPI has been very vocally in favor of some uh, some very progressive tax increases. I think 
our inheritance tax proposal is actually probably more aggressive than anything you'd see in Congress. It's even more aggressive than something you'd see from Bernie Sanders. So uh, I think, you know, we're we're certainly not shy about taxing the rich, but we do think that there's a need to look beyond that for a variety of reasons that we lay out in the report and that I'm sure we'll we'll talk about here. But then also, um, I think there's an important conversation about the structure of our tax code and what actually a, a pro-growth, economically efficient um, and, and practical tax code looks like. And there's just not enough revenue that you can get practically from just the wealthy to make the system work. And just just to orient everybody, the what 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 is the uh, the tax pledge? I mean, I, I, I described it in very broad terms, but uh, you go into some detail in the in the paper. So, how does it function? So that's a good question, and I think it sort of depends on when you ask. When when President Biden initially laid out this pledge uh, in his 2020 presidential campaign. The pledge was to not raise taxes on any on households making under $400,000 a year. Uh, he later specified that it's not just that there's no net tax increase on households making under $400,000 a year. He changed it to be that not a single household making under $400,000 a year will experience a tax increase. He then clarified that not only does he not want new taxes on these households, but he would also extend all existing expiring tax cuts for households making under $400,000. Um, so the pledge has, has sort of expanded in scope over time. And then most recently, when the Democrats passed increased uh, resources for the IRS to crack down on tax cheats, uh, the Biden administration said they were only going to use this these resources to increase audits on Households making over four hundred thousand dollars a year, so it's it's morphed into a very aggressive. We are not going to, in any way, shape, or form, take one penny of tax revenue from households making under four hundred thousand dollars a year. I do want to bring Tori into the conversation, but I want to check a factoid with you before uh, having described all that. Is that I think you said in your paper that it it covers about ninety eight percent of income. And based on 2020 returns, which is about it covers, it covers 98 percent of households. Households, yeah, okay. It covers about it covers about 80 percent of income. All right, all right. So we got the contours, uh, Tori. Uh, let me uh, bring you into the conversation. Finally, um, well, let's stick with the, the the number that we've been focusing on, which is 400,000. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where that number came from. It seems a little arbitrary. And also, you had an interesting factoid in your your paper that points out why just focusing on $400,000 in income is probably misleading and, and not very helpful. So can you talk about where this 400000 line of demarcation, if you, if you will, or red line came from? No, I can't. Um, I have no <laughs> idea why this threshold was picked in particular. I mean, it... You know, when President Obama was in office, he proposed this line of $250,000. Even if you index that for inflation, which we saw a pretty good amount of the last couple of years, it's not 400000 As far as where in the income distribution it is, it is higher than that $250,000 under Obama. So why $400,000? It's high enough that surely nobody is going to argue that you are low income or struggling to get by. If Nobody has any sympathy for you if you're making over $400,000. But there are quite a lot of people under four hundred thousand dollars 
who are also doing pretty well off. I would love to be making $395,000 right now. That would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. It leaves several uh, high-income people below the threshold. As far as why I think that's not a good metric, I think there are a few reasons. Number one, income fluctuates throughout a person's lifetime. So one of the examples that you cited in the paper about just sort of the the fallacies of, of, of focusing on $400,000 is you talked about comparing you know, a wealthy individual, a wealthy retiree, for example, with uh, a young household and how their circumstances might differ. So that, that sort of illustrates the highlights, the, the, the sort of wackadoo nature of just choosing this arbitrary point. Can you talk about that example just a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the $400,000 pledge applies to households earning a certain threshold. Well, what's a household? Um, households vary dramatically. You can have a single earner household uh, or a single a single adult household that has four hundred thousand dollars of earnings. And uh, if you're and you know you could be in the middle of the country, that is that's phenomenal. If you are a four hundred thousand uh, dollar income household, but you have two adults and three kids, and you're in a high uh, expense city like San Francisco. Uh, with with high rents and high cost of living, I mean, you're still well above the median. I, I don't want to suggest at all that I think you know you're struggling, but that is that is very different than the single earner. And I think if you look over the life cycle, it also changes. So uh, if you're making four hundred thousand dollars as a single retiree, um, and you know you no longer have community expenses, you've fully paid off your house. That's even more so versus you know if that you're that family and you have a mortgage. So there's there's a wide variety of circumstances between these two between different groups, um, and just the fact that it's four hundred thousand for singles or couples, four hundred thousand dollars for a couple is like two two hundred thousand dollars for two singles for the most part. I, I think it's just it's a very arbitrary pledge, and that is reflected in both the inability to say why four hundred thousand and the the way it is constructed. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy uh, Institute about uh, President Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on households earning less than $400,000 a year. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and uh, and I are talking to Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about uh, tax matters, including President Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on households earning less than $400,000 a year. Tori, uh, let's go back to you for some follow-up on how this pledge would be implemented. Sure. So, Ben, in the paper that you wrote, uh, one of the arguments that you made that sort of takes a, a, a shot at this this pledge is that we need more revenue. Um, you talk about the the growing imbalance between spending and revenues, especially as more and more baby boomers retire, and how much of our our the spending side of our budget is dedicated to uh, assisting people who are retired, Social Security and Medicare. And then you go and you start uh, uh, attacking what what we call some some fiscal fallacies, some budget myths. And the first one is that uh, we just need to tax the wealthy. And you point out that there literally isn't sufficient 
money among the uber wealthy to cover the gap between spending and revenues. You talk about how the effective tax rate among households earning more than $400,000 is approximately 24%, and that it would have to increase by half just to fund current promises, um, not to mention what other new stuff uh, a future administration would like to do. And I know that a lot of people are going to read that and say, that's no problem. We, you know, we remember that under Reagan, before the 1986 Tax Reform Act, that sometimes marginal rates hit as, as high as 90 percent. So people are comparing, you know, 24 percent with 90 percent, but they're falling into this trap of mixing up effective tax rates versus marginal tax rates. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of help people distill, as you know, as we enter election season here and people are talking about tax policy? Can you talk about the difference between effective rates and, and marginal rates? Sure. So uh, you know, when when you earn higher income levels, we're, our, our tax structure is progressive. And so um, you pay lower tax rate. You pay the same tax rate on your first $50,000 of income, regardless of your final income level. If you're earning $100,000, you pay a higher rate on your second 50 than you did on that first 50. And so that second rate is your marginal rate. And your effective rate is when you average all of those together. And part of the problem with the $400,000 tax pledge is that it's really not practical to go under, to go after income under $400,000 under that pledge, regardless of who earns it. So if you're earning uh, $500,000 a year, in practice, the pledge only allows raising taxes on 100 of that of that $500,000 uh, of income. And so it's it's very messy and it's difficult to bump that number up uh, significantly in, in a way that is consistent with with the tax pledge. Because if you're if you were going to double uh, try to double the average effective tax on uh, someone who is making five hundred thousand dollars a year, you would have to dramatically increase. I mean, I actually don't even know if it's mathematically possible at that point to get there just by increasing taxes on that last hundred thousand dollars. So basically comparing an effective tax rate of 24% with a top marginal rate of 90% is apples and oranges, right? You know, effective tax rate is just talking about the average, you know, the total amount of taxes you pay divided by the total amount of taxable income versus marginal tax rates. That's that extra that you're paying on that next additional dollar, right? So it's 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 not right to compare for example, 24% effective rate with a 90% marginal rate, they're not the same thing. I want to pick up on a couple of other ways that this uh, tax pledge is kind of difficult in the implementation. Well, uh, two, two things, really. One, one, one is that um, two good ways to raise revenue are imposing a consumption tax, like adopting a, a VAT, as they do in many European countries, value-added tax. Another way is to reform so-called tax expenditures, which are exemptions, deductions, credits, exclusions, things that are that you know reduce revenues. If you're trying to do either of those two things and at the same time maintaining that pledge, what sort of challenges do you run into? Yeah, so I think one of the big problems with the pledge is how it restricts the ability to go after a lot of those credits and deductions. You know, earlier we were talking about um, that average effective marginal tax rate, and that was actually, uh, or sorry, the average effective total tax rate, 
Um, and that was actually as a percentage of adjusted gross income. But to get to taxable income, you you apply a lot of credits and deductions, uh, or I guess you apply a lot of deductions that that set what is your your taxable income. Um, and so actually our, our effective rate uh, as a percentage of taxable income uh, for high income folks is actually already higher than that. And uh, we can't we can't broaden our tax base if we uh, we can't broaden our tax base in a way that is consistent with that pledge in a way that's particularly problematic. So, uh, for example, let's say you have a household that is, has five hundred thousand dollars of adjusted gross income and is really good at taking uh, a lot of credits and deductions, and that brings their income below $400,000 a year, their taxable income below $400,000 a year. Well, now it's that's income that should have been taxable, consistent with the pledge, but you can't actually do anything about it now uh, in a way that is consistent with the pledge. And that has led to a whole lot of policy challenges, like when the administration wants to go after a particularly egregious tax loophole um, and there's really no justification for that tax loophole to exist, but they have a carve out. Well, we'll keep it for households earning under four hundred thousand dollars. And that creates that that's that's a conceptual nightmare. It's an administrative nightmare, it just creates a whole host of problems there. And on on consumption taxes, um, I mean, just I, I know that there's an issue like even with the um, Inflation Reduction Act of implementing uh, you know, new revenue for the highway trust fund. Or... Yeah. So I think, I, I think the, the challenge is that taxes, we, there are a bunch of different goals of tax policy, just raising, rev, raising revenue is not the only goal. Uh, um, and raising revenue in the, in the most pro growth way is actually not even the only goal. There's a lot of other goals that we would have for tax policy. So for example, our, our highway system is funded on this user pays principle, or at least historically, it was supposed to be that that drivers who use the roads are the ones who pay for it. We historically did that through the federal gas tax. And as gas tax revenue has declined, there has been a lot of talk about switching over to a system called the vehicle miles traveled tax, um, which would tax people directly based on how much they drive on the road. And there was a pilot for this in the uh, infrastructure bill but there would be no way to actually implement the tax being tested in that pilot under the $400,000 pledge because there would be folks making under $400,000 who are paying that tax. And there'd be no way really logically to income test it because you're supposed to be taxing road usage, not income. Um, and that problem scales throughout really any sort of uh, user fee or, or, uh, or consumption tax. One of the points that you made in your earlier question to Bob is there are multiple reasons why we impose taxes. Number one is to raise revenue. Number two, maybe to encourage or discourage certain behavior. Another point that you make uh, about this, the, the problem with this $400,000 tax pledge is that it could destabilize our democracy. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that point a little bit more in terms of why everybody should share in paying taxes. Uh, yeah, sure. Happy to talk about that. Um, so in, in a democracy, our government is supposed to be accountable to the people. And that also means that people are responsible for holding the government accountable. And when the and you know, the, the whole founding of our republic was based on the idea that uh, people should people give their taxes to the government and they should have a say in how those tax dollars are spent and the government should be responsible with people's tax dollars. But if we have this this new political ethos of 
someone else is going to pay for that program. I don't have to contribute to it. Um, or I can just vote myself money from somebody else that that has destabilizing effects, both because I think it, it pits people against each other in a problematic way, but also uh, it reduces government accountability. You know, why should the government focus on spending money efficiently? Uh, and why do you care if the government spends money efficiently if it's going to come from somebody else? Do you care that this service is twice as expensive to provide to you than it really needs to be if somebody else is the one who is going to be footing the bill? And that creates a really systemic problem for for our democracy and our ability to rationally evaluate trade-offs. Is this program really worth it? Do the Do the voters actually want this government service enough that they are willing to pay for it too? You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are discussing tax policy with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about taxes and particularly a pledge by President Biden not to raise taxes on anybody making any households making below $400,000 a year. Uh, You know, Ben, one thing that we haven't talked about is just the size of the shortfall. I mean, when we talk about future fiscal policy, we've got I mean, the size of the changes you would have to make, both on the tax and spending side or some combination of those, just to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio over a number of years is is huge. Uh, And you might want to comment on that. But the reason that I mention it is, wouldn't that be much more difficult if you're limiting the tax base from which you can draw that revenue? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we have a very instructive chart in the report that shows sort of different tax policies and different different holes that you'd be trying to plug and sort of comparing them. And the the base that we start with is what would it take just if we what what would it take just to stabilize the debt? How much debt reduction would you need to do uh or how much deficit reduction would you need to do over the coming decade uh and beyond to to keep the debt from rising in, in perpetuity. And I, I'm assuming that that all of your regular listeners know all the reasons why we would want to do that, and that would be the goal. Uh, that would be about $7 trillion over the first 10 years. President Biden's budget only had about $5 trillion of tax increases, um, so not enough to, to pay for our current promises, let alone the additional stuff he wanted to do. If you add that stuff in, and wanted to stabilize the debt, which I think would need to be the goal, not just paying for the new policies, because again, there's the question of how do you pay for what we are already doing uh, before you want to expand government. And that would be, you would need more than $13 trillion of tax increases uh, over the next decade to to make that work. So, you know, and we've, I think there are different ways of measuring how much you could get from, from the wealthy. Um, but I think even if you were to really soak them in every possible way, uh, you would struggle to get to that $13 trillion. And one of the things that, you know, a lot of European countries do is they collect revenue uh, through consumption taxes, specifically a value-added tax, which we don't have here. 
But if if at some point Congress were to get serious about you know closing that gap that you mentioned, that would be a possible way of raising revenues. But again, under this four hundred thousand dollar pledge, that would cause a complication in implementing of that, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's something of a theoretical debate, right? Because Congress isn't considering doing that's, a VAT that's right, right now. Yeah, no um, but but I think there, there are strong arguments for why a VAT would be a better way to tax things than the way we do now. Um, you know, if you're if you're talking about you know not just looking at distributional reasons, but taxing consumption, uh, you know, the same groups through their consumption is a lot better uh, economically. It's more pro-growth than taxing their income because it encourages uh, more efficient financial decisions, uh, more savings, more investment. And so it's good for growth in the long term. Um, so you'd want to do that anyway. There, there, are, there are a lot of different tax policies that I think would be worth considering just from a, a better tax, tax efficiency perspective. But those are completely ruled out by the $400,000 pledge um, because they would hit some people who make under that. And even if even if you didn't want to do a value added tax and you wanted to go after you wanted to try to hit uh, European levels of spending policy through the current tax system and just raise taxes, there isn't enough uh, just from high income people there to to make it possible. OK, well, I want to switch gears here and uh, talk a little bit uh, more specifically about a tax bill that is making its way through Congress right now. In a in a bipartisan way, uh, negotiated by the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and the chairman of the Senate uh, Finance Committee, a Democrat and a Republican. And uh, Tori, you've been looking into this bill and and writing about it. Sure. So just to give listeners a little bit of an overview, we've got a tax bill moving through the House right now uh, that would uh moderately expand the the child tax credit, making it a little bit more generous for the next couple of years, um, but then would also uh, delay some tax increases, some pay-fors that were part of the Trump tax cuts in 2017 that sort of, that were supposed to, designed to help pay for the reduction in the corporate tax rate. And these are some business-friendly provisions and they've wrapped them up into a, a tax bill uh, that believe it or not, they've actually uh, offset, according to uh, the Congressional Budget Office, uh, with a, a tax increase, uh, basically halting a COVID area, era uh, employee uh, retention tax credit that apparently is, has been rife with fraud and abuse. And so they're deciding to, uh, this legislation would end it early uh, and thereby and provide some revenue offsets. So they're actually offsetting uh, tax cuts with the tax increase, which I, I find to be very interesting. Um, and and Ben, I know that uh, PPI recently took a, a position on the tax bill. Can you uh, reiterate what PPI is thinking about this, this measure as it moves through the House? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think this is our ideal tax policy in any sense. I think there are, there are a lot of concerns we have. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's temporary. Um, you can only really get the revenue from uh, the employee retention tax credit going away once. Um, we don't really have a plan to pay for either of these tax provisions long term. I, I think it could add to the uh, possibility of all of these these temporary tax cuts being made permanent without offset when the Trump tax cuts expire, because these are now time to have the same expiration. These provisions would be more expensive to make permanent uh, than would appear 
just based on these temporary provisions. So I, I have a lot of reasons to be concerned with it, but uh, I think there are two reasons why we still support it regardless. Number one, the, the offset is a real offset. It, it would be great if Congress had never done this wasteful uh, tax credit. I mean, you know, there's, there's something to be said for uh, our savings, our clawing back money that we didn't intend to spend in the first place, I think is questionable, but it's still a real pay for. Um, it is better. And, you know, I think these are, these are good, these are good tax policies. Uh, they are good investments in the future for the most part. They encourage uh, businesses to do R and D uh, which is the foundation of technological progress. Um, it's money in the child tax credit to help raise children who obviously pay for the social security trust fund and all the the long-term health of our economy is dependent on children growing up healthy and productive. So I think, you know, exchanging wasteful spending on a fraud-ridden tax credit for tax preferences for productive economic activities, I think is a no-brainer. Okay. So here's a question that's that I've been pondering because I think it affects our organization too, the Concord Coalition. As as we make the argument that we need more revenue and that we can't rely solely on taxing the wealthy because there's just simply not enough money there. And by the way, that money's really, really mobile. And that it also, for de- democratic purposes, it's worthwhile for everybody to have some skin in the game. Is there some discordance between that position, but then also supporting something like an expanded child tax credit, which you know not only reduces um, the tax liability for people below 400,000, but actually, you know, that, that credit is refundable. So they would get, they would actually get, you know, their, the taxes that they paid back plus some. So there's a, there's a, an income support uh, element to that as well. Do you see any kind of discordance there or, you know, how, how can we reconcile these two thoughts? Yeah, I actually don't think there's a discordance there because uh, for two reasons, number one, I think, you know, different different groups of taxpayers have different needs and different groups have different needs. Um, and we want our tax system to be, to, to succeed on different measures of equity. Like we think about vertical equity um, being, being, you know, fairness between uh, people at different levels of the income distribution. Um, but there's also this concept of horizontal equity that we want to treat like people the same way. And you could have two households Make, you know, I think this goes back to our, our earlier conversation. You could have one household that is a single ch- childless adult making $100,000, and you have a pa- parents trying to raise two kids also making $100,000. In terms of disposable income, living standards, that single adult is is doing much better financially. And so I think there's a good argument. You're reducing that living standard disparity, and by doing so, you're, incre- you're creating a tax disparity between them. And so I think there's a strong argument for taxing people with kids uh, at a lower rate than somebody without kids who is making the same income. The other point I'd make, uh, and this goes back to, I think, our conversation on the VAT, is just because you're you're not trying to be redistributed, I mean, there's some role for redistribution, but um, just because your primary goal isn't redistribution doesn't mean that there aren't benefits to changing how you are taxing things, what the incentives are. Um, so, for example, uh, I'm in favor of higher corporate taxation. I think, you know, we gave too much money to corporations during the Trump tax cuts. They need to be paying their fair share. We have tons of proposals to do that. But 
I believe that companies that are doing research and development that are uh, making long-term investments in the future are making greater contributions to the long-term health of our economy than businesses that aren't. And I think that there is a role in, and also, by the way, that's an expense that they're incurring. And so their real, their, their real profit is lower as a result of that spending. So I think in the same way that we want tax equity between different types of people to be different, I think we also need to be paying similar attention to how we're structuring our business taxes. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about taxes. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about taxes. Well, we have been talking about taxes. I'm going to shift gears a little bit in this segment. But one more question about taxes. We were talking about the tax bill that's making its way through Congress. And, um, you know, several of the provisions that have been praised by business groups as being pro-growth are are made retroactive. And I'm just wondering what your take is on that, because if you well, if what you're trying to do is incentivize incentive, uh, uh, you know, research and development, and that sort of thing, are you just, you know, kind of rewarding business decisions that have already been made uh, and thus giving a windfall versus providing incentives for the future? I think it's 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 a complicated question. I I generally you know I'm not a fan of retroactive tax breaks. If I were designing this, I would probably have made it more forward looking solely. Um, but my understanding from talking to some of the folks who were involved is that there were a lot of small businesses that had a very unexpected tax hit this year from this policy. Who were you know because they were so heavily invested in R and D. And I, let's just talk very quickly about how this deduction is structured. It is most expenses that businesses incur, they can they deduct from their their income, and we are we tax them on their profits, their net income. But for R and D expenses, as a result of the tax bill, uh, we require them to spread out that or amortize that expenditure over future years. And so, if you are spending a hundred percent of your of your revenue on on R&D, for example, but you're not able to deduct any of that, then even if you don't have an actual profit, even if this business is is not does, is not sitting on cash, they are uh, in the current year required to pay taxes if all of that or most of that was profit. And so uh, a lot of small businesses uh, are, were struggling because of this um, and in a way that was unexpected because this isn't how we've historically done these taxes. And it's, you know, this is a relatively recent provision. And most other countries do not tax R&D spending this way. They tax it the way we used to. And so I think there was a there was a, seen as a need for um, them to do something about taxes in this most recent year. Well, your answer is consistent with our guest last week, Rohit Kumar from PwC, who answered the question very similarly. <laughs> but I wanted to get I wanted to test it out on somebody else, too. And uh, see, because retroactive tax breaks do always raise that question in my mind about, you know, just what are you incentivizing here? You had a conversation last week with 
an official from Moody's. And, uh, of course, Moody's made a lot of news a couple of months ago when they didn't downgrade the U.S. credit rating. It's still AAA, but they switched to a so-called negative outlook for the future. And uh, it just raises the question about the economic consequences of our unsustainable fiscal outlook. So without uh, presuming to speak for Moody's in, in any sense, I was just wondering, you know, what did you pick up from that conversation or what, uh, you know, what points do you think are most important about looking at, you know, you know, why an agency, not just Moody's, but I mean, why people looking at the U.S. fiscal outlook would be concerned about uh, where we're headed? Yeah, so I think there's really two reasons. The first is uh, from the fiscal perspective, interest costs have gotten a lot higher. Interest on our debt is really the way in which debt negatively impacts our economy and our society. Higher higher pressure for borrowing uh, drives up interest rates, higher interest costs for the government, both because of higher rates and a higher stock of debt on which that rate is applied, leads to more annual interest spending by the government. And that's money that uh, can crowd out uh, other critical public investments as you know we spend more money on interest, we are spending less, we might be spending less on the things we need. And so uh, earlier this year, we saw a, a surprising unexpected run-up in interest rates. Um, and that led to us almost having trillion dollar annual interest costs for the first time ever. Um, and it's only going to get, you know, it might get a little better in the near term as rates have sort of stabilized, but over the long term, it's only going to keep getting worse. And so I think if Congress doesn't do anything. And so I think their decision was heavily informed by that. And the other issue is our governance challenges. I don't think we have made any show that you know our government is serious about tackling this issue anytime soon. Um, we're, we have two presidential candidates who are not exactly running on fiscal discipline. We have one saying he's not going to reform entitlement programs and he's not going to raise taxes on 98% of the population. And you have the other who says, He's not. He's going to cut taxes on 100% of the population, and he's going to increase spending, and it all just kind of work out. Uh, you know, I'm presuming who the two parties' nominees are going to be at that point, but I think we all have a good sense. Um, and so, you know, and then you look to things like January 6th and uh, the speaker dysfunction, and just you know, we have we we don't exactly present a model government right now, and so you have a big problem that's getting worse and a government that seems less capable of tackling it than in the past. And so if you look at those two factors, it it is cause for a less than positive outlook. Well, since we brought the presidential candidates into the discussion here, I have to ask, uh, candidate Trump has said that he's going to solve everything by slapping a 10% tariff on every import. Got any comments on that? <laughs> yeah, frankly, I think that's ridiculous. Um, right now, we raise about $100 billion a year in in tariffs. I guess if you were to slap a 10% tariff on everything, you know, even if you were to triple that, um, that's $200 billion a year, you're not even close to that $7 trillion over 10 years, you would need to stabilize the debt. And that's before making all of his expiring tax cuts permanent, that would add uh, another $3 trillion on top. So 10 trillion. Um, so maybe he's about a fifth of the way there. But that that's only that's only the math part of the problem. Tariffs are one of the least efficient ways to raise taxes. They needlessly raise costs for consumers. They complicate our, our foreign policy. It's just it it's just such a such a disastrous way to to go about trying to to raise revenue, and it doesn't even raise enough. For someone who's been hitting, you know, the the 
Trump's been hitting Biden really hard on inflation, a 10% tariff on every import is always going to have an inflationary impact on American consumers, right? I mean, yeah. So, and I think, I think it's important to, to quickly explain why tariffs are inflationary um, because we were earlier talking about a bad in consumption taxes. And if you did a 10% tax on everything, um, prices would probably go up by about 10%. Um, but that wouldn't be inflationary. That would actually be disinflationary. And so why is a tariff so much worse? If you're doing a consumption tax, you're broadly discouraging consumption. And so that puts downward pressure on prices. But if you're doing a tariff, you're only applying it to a certain subset of the market. And so not only are you not getting that broad-based effect, but in reducing the demand for the foreign produced product, you are increasing demand for the domestic product. And so that raises the sticker price of the foreign good for consumers, and it encourages domestic producers to raise their price to that same level, which is just a price increase. And so, uh, you know, is wild that for um, for somebody who is supposedly trying to campaign against inflation, Trump is proposing inflationary tax cuts and the one inflationary tax increase. Thank you, okay. Professor. <laughs> <laughs> That was nice. Listen, we got to go in about uh, a minute or two. Um, very quickly, uh, one of the other bipartisan proposals that's uh, out there is uh, establishing a new fiscal commission. We've been asking guests uh, coming on the show. I mean, we we support it. I, I don't know what, you know, under the, the rubric that I see anyway, the one that passed the House Budget Committee, what is... Uh, PPI's take on a, or your personal take on a uh, new fiscal commission? Yeah, I mean, we're we're very supportive of it. I I I think among Democratic groups, we're probably the most supportive of it. Um, I had uh, a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago talking about why it was why it was good. Um, we've been very vocal uh, in favor of it, um, and I think you know, in our conversation with Moody's, it seemed like they would you know as they're making their uh, determination for the future. Uh, and you know the future outlook of of the U.S. credit system uh, situation. Uh, I think that would be seen as a positive step that would uh, show the government at least starting to think about tackling the challenge. But it's only a first step. If this commission meets and they debate policies and they deadlock and nothing happens, that's not really material progress towards uh, towards tackling the fiscal problem. So um, I'm I'm hopeful that it would be a good first step, but it's only that. Well, you know, you, it's hard to be optimistic when you look at a uh, like the uh, a bill like the border security bill that's been talked about, uh, you know, coming out of the Senate. And, and uh, you know, an open an open argument is, well, we it might be a good policy, but we don't want to pass it because it gets in the way of our political talking points. That's really the, the essence of that sort of political dysfunction that you're talking about is you, you just don't want to solve problems. It's, it's we're geared towards making election points and not to solving problems. And uh, it, that, you know, if uh, a fiscal commission can break through that, uh, so much the better. But as you said, if it's a commission that just takes that attitude about things, obviously nothing good is going to come out of it. But that's all the time we have for this week. So, Ben, I want to thank you for uh, all of your insights and observations this week. Tori, thanks for joining the questions. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week when we'll have another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>